Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about the challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. Before we get into the podcast, a word from our sponsors to this episode. Chargebee is a leading subscription billing platform that powers some of the best SaaS startups, such as Hopkins, Bendesk, Livestorm, and Team Leader. The platform is powerful for startups to navigate complex tax compliance, invoicing, and billing regulations. You can also experiment with different pricing models and localize pricing and checkout experience. Check them out at chargebee.com. E-Residency is a digital gateway to the Estonian startup scene for foreign founders and entrepreneurs. The birthplace of Skype, Wise, and Bolt, Estonia has many advantages for early-state startups for doing business remotely. 90,000 e-residents have already joined. Read more about what they offer on their website at eresident.gov.ee. And now, let's get into today's episode. Only 4% of UK SME exporters take proactive steps to manage the risks and costs of trading internationally, leading to unnecessary losses and wasted time, all because small businesses lack affordable and easy-to-use tools. My guest today is Alex Aksentiev, co-founder of Hedgeflows. Hedgeflows is building solutions that provide SMEs with tools to plan and manage their foreign currency needs as they trade with their international buyers and suppliers, giving entrepreneurs the same advantage that big companies have, but at a fraction of the cost. In addition to hearing about Alex's journey to founding Hedgeflows, I'll also be talking to Alex about how he went about finding his niche market and his thoughts on funding and when you should not go for VC money. So I'm excited to get into this conversation. Welcome, Alex. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So Alex, let's start off with a little bit about Hedgeflows and how you came about starting this company. Sure. My co-founder and I, we actually worked together for 20 years in, in banks, in financial markets, as initially as a traders. And as, a, as we became more senior, we were essentially helping institutions and corporates to deal with their financial risks. But as many people like us in, in, in banking world, the world of banking has changed over, over, over the decades from what was a fairly entrepreneurial environment to a lot more stable, so to speak. And, uh, and uh, at the same time, a bit more boring, right? After a long time doing the same thing, we actually decided what actually, if we can't do something for SMEs, then probably no one can in, in regard to risk management, which we ultimately set off to, to solve when we first started hedge flows. We saw this problem with our first kind of firsthand experience speaking to some of the smaller businesses in, in emerging markets, South Africa, China. We probably weren't as aware how the same problem was still happening and it is still happening even in the places like UK and continental Europe. And when we started, we essentially thought it would just make it a lot simpler for us SMEs to, to manage their financial risks, but that actually turned out a much bigger problem as we started digging into it. Tell me a little bit more about this problem. What exactly is the problem that Hedgeflows is solving for its customers? Yeah, again, as probably you've heard it a number of times, small and medium-sized businesses often overlooked when it comes to services and solutions. Like uh, banks historically didn't really spend time on building or innovating too much, like trying to bring solutions to, to, to these small sectors for a variety of reasons, not their own fault, but SME market is very hard, especially when you have like legacy systems and, and you can't really move fast. And if you look internationally, like one in 10 small to medium-sized businesses trade across the borders, buy or sell or goods or services. 
And just in the UK, that's half a million of small businesses. And when it comes to experience of managing finances or on back of trading internationally, it's very different than even small businesses get in domestic. I like the biggest competitors, they usually don't get any help. They can't hire a specialist, can't afford to bring a specialist on board to, to support them. And that shows up as how difficult it is to make the payments or collect in foreign currencies. Usually it takes a long, longer and costs a lot more, especially when you're really small. We still get a lot of customers, which kind of, it's surprising in this day and age after almost 10 years after WISE made a lot of publicity, how banks charge a lot. The small businesses that come on board, even for us, still actually paying 2% plus for their foreign payments. But that's very basic and that's a lot of other people trying to address that. But then if you think about international trades for businesses, it doesn't stop there. They need to be able to invoice in foreign currencies, reconcile those invoices, manage their finances, understand the cash flows. And all of that, if you do it the way small businesses have to do it, it's too time consuming. It's done poorly or sometimes not even done until year end when accountants hires them up and say, sort it all out. And as a result, like we find that actually a lot of businesses lose several percentage points across different cost drivers, but whether it, like this year, there were a lot of volatility in pound sterling in the UK, people ended up paying a lot more for say something they bought in dollars and had to pay a few months later <laughs> to, again, as I mentioned earlier, just paying too much to their kind of service providers. What we try to do is essentially rather than solve with the service of a human being as an advisor, which is what banks ultimately were trying to originally, we're trying to just like leverage technology and like things like cloud accounting systems and APIs and so on and so forth to essentially remove 80% of manual work, which would happen otherwise from trying to figure out where the costs come from to again, automating mundane payment runs in foreign currencies. That's pretty much how we end up saying both time and money to, to small businesses. Interesting. How big is this problem? Yeah, it's we, when we run the numbers just for the UK, and again, this is financial industries, this number was to, to the tune of 200 million potential savings just in the UK. And if you expand, obviously, internationally, it, grow, it grows significantly. Uh, yeah. We're not suggesting it's all for us, but it's essentially finding new way to save both time and money to small businesses unlocks a lot of potential growth because that's yeah. ultimately what we like why we actually left banking and decided to do it because we do believe that actually help SMEs to grow and trade more safely internationally will actually help them grow bigger and bring prosperity. Yeah, yeah. I want to take you back to the beginning of your journey, Alex, because one of the things I hear most from early stage companies is they have this idea and they know that there's a pain in the market, but it's a challenge to figure out where to start, who would be the right early adopters in the market to start. And I was wondering if you could take us back to when you decided that this is something that was a problem worth creating a company for, how did you figure out what niche to focus on? Or That's did where... you know? No, we, we didn't know. And again, we actually started with uh, almost like our initial discussion was like everyone who pays internationally will have this problem. And it's still, it's still valid, but understanding the severity and where this problem ranks in terms of what other things a small business has to like, deal with, probably the biggest lessons we learned over the last couple of years. Is, and I think when we started, uh, interestingly enough, we were ready to go and start approaching several 
segments, obviously those who trade a lot internationally and have narrow margins, like all the factors, which hopefully will mean that they should care a lot about this problem. But luckily for us, we were actually going through Oxford University Accelerator and they almost told us like, stop, don't start hiring several salespeople and marketing, etc. Just zoom in on one of the, you know, one of the sectors, which we really did. And we like essentially went through prioritization. And it just happened to be that one of the sectors, because we were doing it during the pandemic and uh, during all of the also turbulence with, with logistics, that I, like all of a sudden had this currency problem a lot bigger than they used to. So we actually had a lot of early traction with that market and we learned, and that helped, that definitely helped to get our very first customers and really test our first systems, etc. And it was definitely useful exercise in terms of understanding how how small businesses perceive the problem, because it was actually like, that was another discovery for us. It was very different from large corporations. And that's what we started understand, understanding as we were building the business. It's almost even the language, how you describe the problem matters. Mm. For example, when you talk to a CFO, it's about kind of foreign currency risks. Actually, if you speak to a small business, they would always tell you, I'm small business, I'm taking risks all the time. But if you tell them, we can save you money not only your foreign currency cash flows they, their eyes lit up immediately yeah so little things like that did matter ironically after and that's probably one of the lessons we learned it's also matters that it is we experienced a very early version of innovators dilemma where it's easy to get the early adopters yeah. but even within this niche market i think we learned the lesson well, over time that actually if the characteristics of the industry are such that mass adoption is not likely to happen it's time to switch Mm. And that was the case with this specific market. And actually we had to be with. So if you had to look at your younger self, now that you're a few years mature and wiser in this journey, what advice would you give yourself? I would say have the metrics, have the targets and be very disciplined analyzing, taking a pause and understanding why you're actually not hitting them. In, in the startup world, there is a lot of noise. Right? Yeah. You can't predict a lot of things, but if you take too long, and in our case, we were lucky that it didn't very long, but it definitely would have been better to actually pause and think, why is it, why is that actually a flat lining and not growing faster? Because the problem is there, it's still there, but, but understanding characteristics of the niche segment better, know more about them would probably save us easily by a few months. I see. Any other one? Another one, again, now that actually probably on, on a positive side, uh, having experienced firsthand, like you actually do know when you have, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't call it product market fit, but product solution fit. You almost experience it. And like, we didn't have that, for example, when we're selling to this earlier, earlier in the market, like only with a few of them. But when you actually start getting the customers who, even if you don't pay attention to them, they keep on coming back and want to talk to you. And it almost gets to that level of, excitement and engagement, that's in my mind what now that I feel it, that, that felt it, like I know that's how you actually start understanding that actually you have a solution which kind of solves a real problem. When so you have to sell it hard, yeah, you will get some customers, whether it's because your persistence or your skill yeah. and so on and so forth. When you actually almost don't have to sell it, clients want to use it. That yeah. speaks a lot louder. So to you product market fit is when you don't have to sell so hard and people understand what your solution can do for them and they see the value. Yeah, I think yeah. the product market fit also, and for me, the missing part from product market fit at that stage is still like figuring out go to market. I think you just need mm -hmm. to also figure out how to 
put yourself in a position that a lot of customers find you. Yeah. So is that the stage you're in? You're you've you think you figured out product market fit, and now you're trying to figure out go to market fit. Pretty much, yeah. So we like essentially we spent a long time, and again because we're in a business of finance, and finance means like you have to earn trust. And small businesses like have been promised a lot and del- delivered very little. We spent a lot of time on a product first, and we now actually quite aggressively experimenting with different go-to-market strategies to find what works best. Okay. Okay. So when it comes to the journey so far, how have you funded yourself? So we may be somewhat atypical again after 20 years in banking. So we bootstrapped for possibly longer than a typical startup to start with. And we, we then did a, like a small pre-seed round using the angels. We again, typically believed the idea and believed in the team. And, and that took us to actually like, again, because we're regulated business to rolling out the platform, starting to experiment with this kind of early markets. And early this year, we actually started thinking about doing the seed rounds as we essentially planning to grow. As we were part of this accelerator, had a, a, like a round of discussions with VCs, but ended up still, I guess, maybe because we we're privileged enough to have the group of angels who could trust to stick in with angel money so far. Not to say that actually we had a lot of interesting discussions with VCs and a lot of very valuable feedback. And there will be time when we see funding is definitely well aligned with what we plan to do. But at the stage when you're still figuring it out, I think it's probably, if you can do it, like, like sticking to angels work better for us. Yeah. So there is definitely a timing element when it comes to when you should go to VC for funding. And what you're saying is, and I've heard this a lot, is go to VCs when you've figured out product market fit and you're really looking to scale and use the money to scale. But when you're still trying to figure out a lot of things, maybe VC is not the best route. If you can afford to get money from angels or some other sources, go for that. Is that about that's, right? that? That's pretty much it. The way almost like I think about it, we see almost like a very strong accelerant yeah. for your growth, right? But it doesn't come without a cost being dilution as a found. If your objective of fast growth is aligned with VCs, then it's, that's a, it can be actually be a perfect combination. But if you do, in, in my eyes, if you do it too early, uh, and we see, you've probably seen it as well, the risk is you're probably going to be making unnecessary mistakes, which is again, fine, like, we, like we're in a business yeah. of making mistakes and learning from them. But if you don't have the scrutiny and timely scrutiny to understand those mistakes, which are, sorry, like we're forcing ourselves like to have the scrutiny with having limited money to play with, it actually makes us more diligent. And mm-hmm. as a founders, we spend a lot more time understanding what's working, what's not, rather than throw more money at the problem and see if the solution comes. Yeah. In some ways, having VC money means that you need to go at a faster speed than if you don't have VC money, you're more in control of how you take the company and how fast you take it. For sure. And I think the hard part for us is actually figuring out how to deliver most of the small businesses don't do anything about it. So it's almost we need to stay, change the status quo, which will take time. It's like, that's a long journey. But there's a, a, an element of us figuring out how to make this journey as quick as possible for an SME. If you put a lot of pressure to kind of monetize what we're building, we probably actually would end up being forced to just do like a, lo- a lot of our competitors doing a lot of automation, a lot of spend management and et cetera, et cetera, which wouldn't be the right outcome for clients or, or we see. Is there any disadvantage that you feel you have having not gone the VC route 
at this point? I think it's not for everyone. You do have to have a confidence in your idea because essentially you need to be managing your own runway a lot more diligently. Right. I think it does it does bring extra pressure on you as a founder. So, some of the VCs that we spoke to do offer a lot of other things, whether it's support in terms of hiring and the networks they have, which again, I think would, will be even more useful when you're planning to start scale up and build a team. When you have essentially plan, hiring plans of five in a, in a year, you probably don't benefit as much from it. And then obviously, if you actually attract the VC, which has a brand name, it does lend credibility. When you're actually solving the problems for almost like very small businesses, which may not actually yeah. heard about the same name. It didn't really help us that much at the early stage. Yeah, makes sense. I know that in terms of a team, you have nine people full-time plus contractors. Was it hard to attract people given that you didn't have VC funding? What are some things you did that you feel worked for you in terms of finding the right talent to come on board? Yeah, the hiring as a startup is hard. And I suspect you heard it. A lot. Again, we, we have a lot of experience hiring people in big organizations and yeah. hiring and retaining people. So it was quite interesting to compare how actually when you start up, it's, it's almost like the same as with customers. You, you do have to sell a lot more and you do sell the vision. Right? And this is where the balance comes in. It's like you, you have to sell the vision of the, for your long-term product and the culture and organization that you're building. In our case, I guess, again, the, the plus that we offer is like we come with experience and the credibility, which is useful to, to convince potential employees that actually we're building something very different. People do want to be working on not the next credit card, uh, prepaid card. They want to be looking at new things and solving like real problems. Being able to articulate how the input will, will drive the real change. It was very important. Finding the candidates, I would say, was always hard. And like I, th I would say, probably this kind of the challenge and the time it takes, I found actually reaching out to prospects through LinkedIn was like a very useful. Even though we were very close to hire, hiring some people through the channel and ended up not getting them at the end, it was tremendous experience and made it easier to understand what to offer similar candidates and we're staying in touch with some of the people we couldn't get. But it's actually almost a super useful way to start building the network of people, which again, until kind of my startup days, I didn't really. Yeah. I think EO should be constantly having a pipeline of great candidates they find. And then when the right opportunity comes, they have a pipeline versus trying to hunt them Absolutely. for them when they need them. Okay. So. Is there anything else I should have asked you, Alex, in terms of what you're doing that you think would be helpful for other entrepreneurs or maybe something you did, you made mistakes in that you want to share with other entrepreneurs so that they don't do the same thing? Let me think. We talked about fundraising. We talked about hiring. Those are usually two big yeah. ones. We talked about niche and finding your initial customers and pivoting and knowing when to I, do that. I think to a degree, and it's, I don't know what, how we can call it classified, like understanding the investor, as we talked about it, understanding the investor segments, right? And again, we probably, it's, it was an interesting learning experience for us, because if you probably asked me a year ago, how much I know about VCs. I would say like not much and which yeah. was true. Like I obviously having worked 20 years in banking, like I didn't really know all the details. We had obviously a very interesting year between now and then. I think understanding these incentives early on, when we first started engaging with people, every single VC was, we are doubling in, in, even if it's like a really gross fund to obviously six months later, 
one was obviously not on, on sidelines. And really what hasn't changed, the, the truth is like required the growth. So underlying yeah. problem is had to go down to like earlier stages, but fundamentally the incentive for them to work is, uh, with startups hasn't changed. They need growth. They promised the investor growth at their best stage to use them as growth. And we probably also could have done better reaching out to wider angel networks when we're doing our kind of earlier rounds. We almost like, again, maybe it's because we had the privilege of knowing some angels didn't spend that much time like raising what we needed to do. I would spend a lot more time all of a sudden than when we had proactive engagement from VCs to see if they were interested. When we're going to be doing the next round, it will be very different and we need to be a lot more prepared and proactive earlier on. Yeah. So less opportunistic and more systematic and process-driven. Exactly, yeah. I yeah. think you had someone recently on a pod podcast, which I listened, it was quite clear, clearly he was serial entrepreneur. It is a selling process. It yeah. is about actually like putting the process in place. Yeah. Yeah. He described it as almost like a sales process with a pipeline and exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think he contacted 200 VCs in yeah. I don't know, 10 days or something, which I thought was quite incredible. Okay, yeah. great. We've come to the end of the podcast, Alex, but I wanted to ask you some questions that I usually ask all my guests. If you've heard any of my podcasts, you would have heard it too. And I usually start with your favorite book, any book you'd like to share with the audience. So actually, as a proper slow, I'll do a shout out to Disciplined Entrepreneurship. I think it's 24 steps to a successful startup. And don't, maybe not exact name, but Disciplined Entrepreneurship by Bill Ollett. Yeah. Uh, it combines a lot of other kind of earlier books into whether it's Lean Startup, et cetera, into actual almost step-by-step -step guide. And it's a very useful book. I do recommend it to, especially people who do startups first time. Yeah, I would say that's one. Okay. Any other sort of non-entrepreneurial books, fun books Ooh. maybe? That you like or you would reread? Yeah, I think not necessarily fun, but Radical Candor is like something yeah. I make people read I just yeah. because maybe so then understand my personality better because I do believe in actually more direct feedback and timely because I ask for the same for myself. Yeah. I think it's a brilliant book to, for especially people who start to manage first yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I've been recommended that book by many CEOs actually. Okay, and what about your favorite European city? A good question, and I would say Biarritz, and uh, probably not a very known place, but if you like a uh, combination of nature, mountains, sea, and yet very kind of cultural place uh, on the border between Spain, almost border Spain and France, okay. do recommend to visit. Okay. And what is a productivity tip or productivity tool you would recommend? What? How do you keep yourself productive? Yeah, I'm probably boring on that front, like just like old school lists and crossing things out or now digitally doing it in Evernote, but just keeping, keeping like at least tidy and making sure you don't forget about things. It just works. Yeah. Yeah. And then my last one is what's a favorite quote that you have? It could be yours or it could be somebody else's, but that you really like their quote and you say it to yourself or you say it to we, 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 I, I just noticed we're saying it more and more among ourselves in a, like recently. Don't pay attention to what people say, do pay attention to what they do. I think in a world where there's a lot of noise and a lot of selling, actually, it's like not to be underestimated how kind of actually actions speak a lot louder. That's a brilliant quote. And especially when you start thinking about people say, interview your users, really find out what they need. I remember actually my brother is an entrepreneur and he was building something and he had all these user interviews that he did. And he said what they said, he first had their interviews and I think surveys and things like that. He said what they said 
And then when he had them in the lab doing things and then observing them was completely different. Exactly. Yeah. We've seen it so many times. And again, it's, it's especially when that's one of the things that we're spending a lot of time on. Like we, we do that, try to speak to our users about the problems they face, but it goes back to a little bit to, um, to the famous quote, uh, quote. If you ask people how they want their car, what was the quote again? Like about the four horses. The four, no, basically, if you want some, if you want them to be design a solution, they're probably the wrong people to ask. You, know, you need to understand the problems for them, but the solution, yep. building the solution is on you. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I think that's a good place to end this podcast, Alex. Thank you so much for being on my show. And yeah, I'm really excited with what Hedgeflows is building. I think there's a lot of stuff happening in the SMB business, SMB segment. And yeah, look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you very much for your time. It was my pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show. Thank you very much for listening and until next time, keep building.